those of you that are not podcast insiders, this is what's known as a cold opening. That's right. Like where you just jump right in and you start talking. You don't introduce yourself. You don't introduce the podcast. You just jump in. And that's what I'm doing here. I've been doing a lot of that lately, the cold opening thing. Do you like it? I like it. It feels spontaneous. Although I have to tell you, I have to sit here for about five minutes before I do a cold opening, trying to think of something cool to say coming in. And today, obviously I couldn't do that. And that's why I'm talking this way. <laughs> I like it. Do you like it? Yeah, I actually, I actually do. Yeah. Well, there you go. Then we'll go with that one. And that other voice, the voice liking my cold opening is the voice that likes, he likes most of what I do. That's because he's my pal. And that's John, right? John. Hey, Bart. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. I'm glad you like the cold opening, and uh, I'm glad you're here. And when you're here, typically, that means that we're going to do a Q&A or a Q&R or a Q&something, but we're going to, somebody's got a question, and we're going to do our best to kind of mess around with it. That's right. I have the question in front of me if you're ready to go. I do. Is there anything that you feel like you need to tell me in preliminary about your life, about the world? Is there anything... I don't think so. No. The only thing I can think is that like I'm really surprised to find myself in February 2023 already and I don't know where kind of the last months to years went of my life. You know what I mean? Like the passage of time has gotten quicker as everybody warned me that it would in middle age, which is where I now am. And I'm like, wow, I can't even believe it. Yeah. And it, it, trust me, it just keeps getting faster. <laughs> it's, it's shocking. It's yeah. shocking. You know, it's funny. I, I remember hearing Billy Graham, uh, you know, the old evangelist. Who, it's funny, but it used to be that you could say Billy Graham and he was like the everyone one religious knew. figure yeah. that everyone knew. And now I'm like, for most of our audience, Billy Graham was a very famous <laughs> traveling evangelist. Um, right. You know, who was That probably, is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really, you know, again, like that was five minutes ago. Pa passage of time. Yeah. But I remember them saying, what's the most surprising thing to you about life? And he said, you know, it's just so brief. Yeah. I just had no idea when I was a young person how, how quickly it would go by. Yeah. That's yeah. bizarre. I was watching some movie the other day and there were old people in it reflecting. And then, and then I read a novel called Less about a, a novelist who's, you know, turning 60 and he's reflecting on his misspent youth and all those things. And all these things were reflecting from the position of old people that I suddenly realized like were my contemporaries. And I was just shocked at how quickly I was in the crowd of people looking back and evaluating whether or not they had spent their lives in a meaningful way. And I was like, no, 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 I was, I was still warming up. Like I was still, I was getting ready to figure out what I was going to do with my life. You know, right. <laughs> I'm just about, I think I'm ready to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. So, you know, really we better cut to the question because it could we all better be over. Go. It could all be over before we're done. That's true. Well, for the record, that was the warmest cold opening in the business. Ah, there so. you go. Here's the question for this week. Hey, Bart, I came across an article on Vox talking about the movement known as effective altruism and the fall of one of its star advocates, cryptocurrency exchange owner Sam Bankman-Fried. The guy had lost at least a billion dollars of his client's money after he secretly transferred it to a hedge fund he owned. He's now been arrested for it. But what's confusing is that his stated goal in life was to do good. He said he wanted to make a lot of money in finance so he could give most of it away to good causes, specifically causes identified using 
effective altruism. Paraphrasing from the Vox article, effective altruism is a social movement that's all about using reason and evidence to do the most good for the most people. Yet it looks like Bankman Freed has done a lot of bad to a lot of people. On top of this, Bart, I know there have been other criticisms of effective altruism, and I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on whether a good humanist, and maybe especially a humanized me listener, should be involved in effective altruism, or whether it's a dubious proposition these days. Thanks. What an interesting question. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of reading all the news about this FTX collapse and the whole thing, and is, the details of it are kind of interesting to me. I know, I got wiped out. You got wiped out? You, you, yeah. had, you had deep investments in FTX? I mean, think about it. As soon as crypto came on, who was the first person you thought, like, he'll be on board with that right away? Oh, yeah, you were just hawking yeah. all these different cryptos, and I, I didn't know what to do. Hey, I have a really good friend who did get very into crypto. Oh, really? And yeah, and fortunately, he did it with his fun money. Yeah. But his fun money ballooned into a lot of money and mm. then and then yeah. was gone. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote it in a kind of vicarious way. But what's an interesting question for me, and the one thing I want to say is, I actually think it's a good question, but in some ways it's a unhelpful question or problematic question. Okay. Because if there's anything that we should have learned from our religious days and then our immediate post-religious days and all the conversations we've had with people on the other side of Faith Divides, it's that you never want to judge a movement by its most notable proponent or by its most notorious proponent. Right, right. So you're right away, you're kind of saying, Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, d come on. He's not effective altruism, and effective altruism is not Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, and in some ways, I mean, it would be like if Bernie Madoff, you know, was also really into pickleball. And <laughs> you were like, you see, I have pickleball. It's just, it's just a den of iniquity. Right, um, right. You know, and so I go like, Sam Bankman-Fried was effective at something. But Bernie Madoff, that's an interesting example because you think about like the financial collapse, a lot of people did sort of reevaluate Wall Street or whatever on the basis of like reading about that, you know? Right. And I think if you want to reevaluate cryptocurrency on the basis of the FTX mm. collapse, I think that's a sensible thing because that was at the center of the whole thing. But I think the effective altruism was what, if I understand correctly, that's what Sam said, like with my billions... This is the methodology by which I'm going to do good in the world. Right. And not only that, but that was his motivation for getting rich in the first place. Right. That's what he said. Like, the reason I want to be a billionaire, essentially, is because I want to do a lot of good in the world. And if I understand this whole effective altruism thing, one of the things that might happen is, is that in the old days, somebody might be doing really well in their business or in finance. And we would say to that person, you know, buddy, you need to take a day off every weekend or every week and go tutor inner city kids or go build houses with Habitat for Humanity or, you know, go right. teach literacy in a prison to kind of humanize you, to kind of keep you grounded and stuff like that. Yeah, you did your share of that, right? With students that you would meet and you'd say like, hey, these people are really bright kids and they're going into things like finance where really they're just gonna kind of make rich people richer a lot of their career. Right, and in some ways what I was saying to people was don't go into finance, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> um, do something more meaningful with your 
career energy. But this could be a good counter to that, couldn't it? If it actually is a good strategy to make a whole lot of money that you wouldn't make, let's face it, as a social worker or something, and then give all that money away or do something really cool with it. Well, that was when I first encountered effective altruism, that was one of the pitches that it said, you don't want to say to a guy like Warren Buffett, take five hours off of work and volunteer at the local soup kitchen because five hours of Warren Buffett's work would produce enough income to pay for 10 soup kitchens. Mm. So in some sense, the most effective or the most, yeah, I guess the most efficient way of using Warren Buffett is to say, you're the best guy in the world at making money. So you go over there and make money all day long and we'll take that money and we'll use it to hire people who are less good at making money, but better than you at tutoring inner city kids or better than you at building housing or better than you at running a soup kitchen. And like you make the money because that's what you're good at and they'll give away the food because that's what they're good at. Right. And, you know, so a guy like Sam Bankman Freed, is that how I say it? Yes. Yeah. So a guy like him goes like, you know what? I know how to make a lot of money in this cryptocurrency thing. So I'm going to do that and then I'm going to take that money and I'm going to use the same principles by which I make other investments and I'm going to figure out what's the most effective way for me to invest my money. But the first investment that he makes is the investment of his time in earning the money in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it's just a fascinating sort of thought experiment. Like I could be like, if I'm deciding how to spend my life, this is essentially the calculus he made. It's like, if I'm going to decide how to spend my life, if I want to do good, I could either go and feed homeless people on a Friday night in my local park, or I could figure out the most efficient, optimized way to do the most good. And I could put those hours into making like a ton of money in the markets and then turn it around. Right to feed homeless people. And it's like, I don't know why I feel skeptical of that, except, you know, in the wake of a story like this, but like, why would I feel skeptical in advance of that? When that's, that's the thing, like, that's why I go, like, it's unhelpful to attach this guy and yeah. his mania yeah. to this thing, or even cryptocurrency in general. It's just like the larger concept of effective altruism seemed like it had much more to do with stewarding your resources to accomplish the most good whether that involves you having a direct hand in the do-gooding or you simply financing it. Right. And when I was at USC, a lot of my really smart students were like, this is the best way to do it. You know, and you use research and you look at different charities and figure out how effective they are and how efficient they are and how well run they are and how good their strategy is. And sort of, you know, you would end up with, really lean organizations that were managed using scientific principles and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to get the most good done in the world. And my skepticism always was that for most people, service or giving or sacrificial giving in particular was, is driven by an emotional connection to the need that you're meeting. And so I always used to say that if I could get somebody to give me $1,000 or to give me five volunteer days or like five volunteer hours, I would always want the hours because I knew if I could get them into our facility, seeing what we were doing for poor people and seeing the needs of the people and the kind of people that are coming in and the human encounters that were taking place. And if they like fell in love with some homeless child or something like that, I'd get way more than a thousand bucks out of them in the end. Right, right. 
because they would feel a connection. Well, okay. So I think we should come back to that point about like the use of that time, you know, the emotional connection thing, because that's an interesting point. But before we do that, you have some history with nonprofit work, right? Like, yeah, beyond just what you considered like your own ministry in the world. Like when you're a Christian, you ran nonprofits. I ran nonprofits. I had friends who ran nonprofits. I actually worked for a while. I was in charge of a large amount of money that was being invested in a bunch of nonprofits. And I had like about 20 nonprofits that we were funding to different amounts. Mm. And so I would stay in touch with those organizations and try to figure out, well, where should we up our giving? Where should we cut it back? Where could we give a specific, like what they call a designated gift to get something done that we wanted to get done? Wow. Would you say you were involved in kind of an effective altruism then, like of a kind? Yeah, I was definitely trying to get the most bang out of my funds. Like if there was too many administrative fees, right. you would be like, hey, how can we cut this administration cost? Or if an organization was doing three things and they were doing two of them really well and one of them like was costing a lot of money and it didn't seem to have a lot of effectiveness, I would sort of sit down with them and go like, listen, you know, tell me why we're doing this third program. And... You know, and sometimes it was legacy stuff or it was because the founder's mother started it and they didn't want to shut it down. And you'd sort of go like, you know, I'll give you a grant of $50,000, but it would be contingent upon you using it for these two programs and not this one. Right. So you would make judgments about mm -hmm. where you could accomplish the most good. And sometimes you would make suggestions, okay, again, because like if you're giving people money or if you're in charge of the money that's being given to them. All of a sudden, they're really interested in your opinion. Right. I had leverage to provide that kind of stuff. And in the end, then I got some organizations that would call me and say, hey, Bart, we'll pay you a couple thousand dollars if you'll come for a weekend and evaluate our ministry or evaluate our organization or evaluate our youth program. Because like you've seen enough of these things that you have some perspective, you're kind of like a smart stranger. Mm -hmm. So will you come in and take a look and then make some recommendations? And that was super fun work. But like, again, you learn to have kind of a, I don't want to say a cold eye, but you learn to have a little bit of objectivity when you looked at people's work and said, just because people are working hard on something doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually having a big impact. Right, right. A rational eye, like an evidence-based eye. Yeah. Like you were looking for evidence that it was working. You were looking for evidence that it was the right goal. All of these kinds of things. Yeah. So on some level, yeah, you're looking for efficiencies. You're looking for effectiveness. And I think that the effective altruism movement took that to a higher extreme where they were like, look, let's get really analytical mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. And everybody should do the most good that they can. And the way to do that is to kind of make these cold calculations. And, and that's where I started to realize like there were some warm calculations that were also really important that don't show up on a spreadsheet. Mm. And so for instance, one of those is like, I know I can get Mr. FTX or whatever, like maybe I'll have him giving me a million dollars a year for the first three years. But if he doesn't have any emotional connection to what we're doing, if all I can do is show him numbers and like, you know, make PowerPoint presentations to him, I just wonder like in year four, in year five, how long is he going to stick with this pouring money down an emotional black hole? Like one where there's no emotional feedback? There's no emotional feedback. And so in the end, you go like, well, what if we use that calculation and he gives more money because he feels better about it and stuff like that? And I go like, yeah, but what about if he gives up on giving altogether in year four? Because like, he's like, this doesn't touch me. 
So the way that another Sam that we know, Sam Harris, sort of related to effective altruism was he said disconnecting it from his emotions was the point to a certain extent. Like he wanted to automate his giving. So he actually legitimately just designated an amount. He doesn't want the emotion. Right. Well, because he wanted to designate an amount that goes to this. He doesn't want to like, he wants to go like, these are the most effective things. So I'm going to do them based on pure rationality, automate them every month, these outgoings, and forget about it. And then if I, on top of that, want to play with something, you know, something touches my heartstrings on the street or whatever, and I want to give on, on top of that, but that's not my main giving. Right. And again, like, there's a truth in what he's saying, because the truth is, is that a football player for the Buffalo Bills, who's a millionaire, had a heart attack on the field a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the Bengals were playing the Bills. I heard about this. And everyone was watching on TV. Everyone saw it. People were crying and sad. It was very emotional. And then the guy made an emotional recovery. And like all of a sudden, his little charity was inundated with money. Where everyone's like giving money, you know, and everyone's like, you know, we need to help Demar, and we need to do all this stuff. And you go like, what his charity did was give toys to kids at Christmas. <laughs> Nothing to do with his injury at all. Nothing to do with injury, and, and not a particularly effective thing to do. Like if, if you want to fight poverty in Buffalo, I could show you many more sensible programs. But like it was a totally emotional commitment. Or you could be watching on television, you could see some. African famine-stricken kid covered with flies and you could feel so sad and you write a check for that thing and you have no idea whether it's it's going to that kid. When I was preaching, if I told a really effective story about our work, some tearjerker about some kid on the street that we helped, like it would move people to give lots more money. Mm-hmm. And you go like, well, what if the next guy that came in ran a youth program that was actually more sensibly organized than mine, but he wasn't as good a storyteller as me. And I'm like, tough luck for that guy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know. And so who can tell the best story or who can touch your emotions the most effectively? Right, right. Is not necessarily where your money should go. So Sam's right on that level. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, I don't want to be emotionally driven because like, I know that my emotions can easily be manipulated. The kind of emotions that I'm talking about are not ones that are these kind of indirect, like who can make the best YouTube video. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about what happens when you actually know people and you're actually in the trenches a little bit yourself. And then you step out and you're like, I know how this works because I've I've done it. Yeah. I am a big brother, big sister. And therefore, when I support that program, I know exactly how it works because I'm I'm one of the people they recruited to volunteer and and I believe in this because I'm emotionally connected because I understand it in a firsthand way. Right. But the other thing is this, it's like, like, hey, Sam, why are you giving? And he would say like, I'm giving to do the most good in the world. And I go like, that's funny because if I'm honest about why I do things for other people, a lot of times I'm looking for the endorphin bump of feeling like I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. It's a selfish act. It is. And you go like, well, then stop calling it effective altruism because Bart, you, what you're really doing is it's effective sort of meaning making or self-fulfillment. And I go like, yes. That's so interesting. Guilty as charged. Yeah. And on some level, what I want to say is, is that I think that you're more likely to stick with an act of service or a sacrificial thing if you get 
the endorphin bump. If you get the hit that says, yeah, this yeah. is costing me something. But when I look in the mirror then at the end of the day, I go like, I like that guy. So are you kind of saying effective altruism works great, dot, 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 for cold utilitarians? Like, in other words, to some extent, it's about how people are constituted if they're... That's a great way of saying it, because I don't want yeah. to be fundamentalist on either way. Right, I don't want right. to go like, effective altruism is wrong. It's not the best way. My way is the best way. And I also don't want to go, effective altruism is right. And somebody like me, who's not going to stick with it unless I have some emotional connection to it, that that's wrong. I'm going to go like, depends on who you are. I have a feeling that Sam Harris and I, this is a wild guess. I don't know him. I've never been to the same room with him. I'm sensing I'm warmer than he is. <laughs> I just, just, I mean, just between you and me. And, you know, if somebody knows Sam and wants to like bring us together and test us out, like, <laughs> right? I just right. have a feeling I'm a little more emotionally yeah. driven and he's a little bit more coldly rational. No, I think that's probably right. And just to give clarity to my last sort of a little statement there or question, you know, the philosophy student in me remembers what utilitarianism is. And we're kind of all this way to a certain extent, wouldn't you say? Like we're people who want to do things for maximum utility, for how well it works. Like if our remote control isn't working for the TV, we'll buy a new one as a, just a practical matter. Like everything we do is kind of optimized to some extent for that, whether we acknowledge being utilitarians or not. I'm not sure what the opposite of that is philosophically in the way we're talking about it. But like certainly what you're saying, like reaching people emotionally has always been a big part. We are storytelling machines. Yeah. And meaning making machines. And part of the way we make meaning is by contributing to the lives of other people directly. And so like our brains are hardwired to like pick up on other people's emotions if they're in the same room with us. And so you go like, well, what's the difference if I'm feeding a bunch of hungry kids here in my own city, or if I'm sending the money to Africa? And the answer is the difference is huge. Yeah. And it's also why when a little white girl gets trapped down in a well, all these white people write big checks to try to get her out of the well, right, even though right. there are like 50 African children starving, whose whole lives could be saved much more effectively in another way. And you go like, why are they motivated by the, ah, because she looks like their daughter. Right. She looks like their granddaughter. They identify with her. And you go mm -hmm. like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm like, it's just a human thing. I mean, it's certainly a bad thing in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't allow the people who have the most to give to really be well-placed to help people who have the least, you know. It's a form of tribalism. And where right. people are, even in their giving, they tend to look after their own mm -hmm. and they tend to look after the things that, you know, I, I remember when, when people were giving all this money to Jesus and giving it to the church. And then you go like, what was that money going for? And it's like, oh, it was going on like missions trips for their kids and pastor salary and new organs for their church and a pastor who could preach really well that would entertain them on Sundays. And you go like, is this really giving after all? Or are they just like sort of padding the pews at the social club that they enjoy? Right. And it's not that I think that that's necessarily like we should ban that. I'm just like, I don't know that I want to give it a tax deduction. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but my point is, is that a lot of times people, one of the things in a human society is the more regional our impact is, the more, the closer to home our giving is, the more it connects to our lives and the more it sort of resonates. It resonates with us. And so I think like if you wanted to build a long-term society where people would support putting money into poor children's educations, for instance, you're like, well, you know what? 
If I put money into poor children's educations here in Cincinnati, there's less poverty in my city. It's easier to drive around. I don't get panhandled as much. And you go like, well, wait, then is it really giving anymore? And I go like, well, for the poor kid it is. And you go like, well, that's a win-win. And I go like, yeah, I think you're going to build more giving when people get rewarded emotionally and sometimes even practically for investing in other people and for investing in the welfare of their overall society. And so, you know, it's funny, I was just listening to this, this guy who just wrote this book on the collapse of globalism. I'm forgetting his name, but Peter Biner, not Biner, no, he's, he's somebody else. I'll come to it. But anyway, what he was talking about was, he said, he feels like the demographics of China, the demographics of Russia, all these things are going to happen. And we're going to end up having a less global economy and more regional economy where like a power of the United States really, you know, has its biggest influence here in North America and economy. And we're not sending so much stuff to China or getting so much stuff from China for all sorts of reasons. Right. And I was going like, when it comes to, to service and giving, that'll be a really good thing because people are going to be less willing to build toxic waste producing factories when they're down the street. Mm-hmm. When they're around the corner, lots of people are willing to do all kinds of shit if it's just going to pollute the air in China. Yeah, that's a good point. Is it uh, Peter Zihan? Yeah, that's the yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. The end of the world is just the beginning. That's his book. Yeah, and he's a really interesting guy. He reminds me of the guy I listened to twenty years ago. That got me. In. There was a guy who made a movie called Collapse, and it was all about like peak oil and what oh, was going to yeah. happen when we ran out of oil. And I, you know, I totally drank the Kool Aid on that one. And this guy, it's funny, like. I should drink the Kool-Aid on this guy too. He's much more, I think. Uh, <laughs> much less likely to get your son angry at you. Yeah, he's, he's much more grounded in reality. But what the weird thing is, is I'm older now and I'm skeptical of my own attraction to end of the world scenarios that are like that. I'm like, ah, let me see. Because I've just seen so many different ones where it made sense to me that this would be the end, whether it was running out of food or running right. out of oil. And it turns out we sort of tech our way around it or we find that something changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway, that's a tangent. The thing about it on this level is I just think that the more giving is connected to people's lives and where they can see the impact of their work, of their sacrifice, even of their money, the more likely you are to build in loops that keep it going. And frankly, I don't just give money, like Sam Harris says, I'm giving money to make the world a better place. And I go like, yeah, I'm actually giving money because I'm convinced it's a way of making meaning in my own life. It'll make me a better father. It'll make me a better husband. It'll make me enjoy the novel I read more. It'll broaden my understanding and my sense of being, of belonging on the planet and my connection to nature. Like that, in a sense, it sounds really weird, but if you said, Bart, if I was gonna just kill you, and that would produce, the world would pay $10 trillion to kill you, and that all that money would go to charity, would you let us kill you? And I would go like, I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> right, it's not like an easy yes. <laughs> because like, <laughs> that would clearly be the most effective thing I could do. Well, right. That's the cold utilitarianism. Yes, right. sure. C- kill me now. And I go like, giving is only one of my values. Yeah. Belonging, feeling connected, having a sense of mastery, building close relationships, like my grandchildren. Like these are all other parts of my value system. And I go like, yeah, I don't know. Like even in Sam Harris's charity, like he'll give some money to charity and then he spends a lot more money on his kids. And I would sort of go like, I don't want to say as he should. As he will as a human. 
as I do. Mm-hmm. And you go like, well, wait, are you saying that you're more committed to some humans than other humans? And they go like, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and so that's where I think that it's important to place our financial giving in the broader context of what our, our overall value system. And sometimes I think like the efficiency model of giving just leaves out a lot of the human element. Okay. Yeah. I've noticed that there's criticism about like, sometimes it doesn't allow as much local giving or it doesn't encourage as much local giving in your own city and stuff like that. Because yeah, it's it's identifying the real needs in a very uh, cold way are always further afield. They're always like around the world somewhere. And it's almost like this, this conversation about AI, Bart, where they go like, yeah, an artificial intelligence may make really good decisions in that cold, rational way. But those can lead to some weird outcomes, potentially, because it's going to be too cold. It's going to be divorced from human emotion about it. And I think it would be very hard in your charitable giving to sort of go like, well, is anybody going to give to the ballet? I don't think so. Like, they're starving children in Africa. And so you could end up with a world where everybody is eating. There's no music. There's no arts. There's no art. And I go like, I don't know. And you go like, well, are you willing to sacrifice your kid for art? And I go like, no, but the good news is I don't have to. Right. And so the people that support the arts generally are not sacrificing any of their own kids' lives. That's a very good question. Like, I wonder what effective altruists would say about the arts, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And and they might put in a different category and go like, okay, Sam Harris would say, this is the money I I set aside to give to the needs of, of the world. And this is money I set aside to invest in arts because I like art. I'm sure there's a workaround for that, but I would just say like, it's probably more on a continuum. The other thing is this, is like, is it worth it to save the life of, like people are going to have different values, even in terms of life-saving stuff, where somebody might go like, I know people who have been personally touched by Down syndrome or premature birth and things like that, and they're willing to invest millions of dollars in like a neonatal unit to save prematurely born children or some such thing. And you go like, you know what? Actually, if I took half of that money and invested it in preventative public health, we could avoid many premature babies being born or we could, you know, by educating mothers, by providing vitamins and food stuff. And they go like, yeah, 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 that's not really where my heart is. Mm -hmm. And so you go like, do I want to take the million for the preemie unit? So sometimes not all money is going to be equally available for each thing because people sometimes only will give to things that they are emotionally connected to. Yeah, so interesting. Huh. Anyway, I think that the main thing is that I would say for a Humanize Me listener is... Well, I was just about to say, this guy's asking like, not only about humanists in general, but Humanize Me humanists. (laughs) Yeah, and and by the way, Humanize Me is a very self-oriented approach, right? Like, I'm trying to make the most of my life. Right. And it's a warm and emotional approach. Right. But it's also a selfish approach where it's going like, am I going to build loving relationships? Am I going to do work that makes a difference for others? Yes. Why? Because I think ultimately it's going to leave me feeling, feeling good about the way I spent my life. I'm going to like myself when I look in the mirror. I'm going to have a better relationship with my wife because she's going to admire me because she saw that good thing I did with that hurting person that I gave mm-hmm. up some time for. And she's going to be like, wow, that's really sexy the way he 
look at him. He's so good with kids. And <laughs> and I go like, is that part of the equation? And I go like, of course it is. I don't know that you would say. I admire people that are givers. Right. But I don't know that you would say that, that the actual giving or the good being done is just like a byproduct or just like something that doesn't matter as much. No, I can't distinguish the two. Like they're just together. They're just. Do tied I up like together. helping people? Yes, I do. Right. And you go like, wait, do you like it because it helps the other person, or do you like it because of the way it makes you feel? And I go like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. I remember years ago, I, I had a a deck outside my house and like a fire pit, and I used to have f- friends around all the time, and we'd sit and talk, you know, until two in the morning around this fire, and you know, drink things and talk, and like just have a good time. And I remember this one night we were talking about someone brought up the question: Is there a truly selfless act? You know, is there a truly like purely altruistic act? And the conclusion everyone came to after like two hours of talking about examples and this and that, it's like, no, not really. There's like, yourself is always involved. Even for the cold, utilitarian, effective altruist, they know that what they're doing is making the best use of every dollar they have. There is a feedback loop, actually. It may not be a highly emotional one connected to a human story, but it is a feedback loop. Yeah. And I think like if anybody goes like, well, you know, you have mixed motives there or like, you know, your motives aren't pure. I go like, listen, if there is such a thing as a pure motive in this world, I've never seen it. Right. You're just being more like aware of it and more honest about it. In this moment, you know, not not always. (laughs) But also almost telling people, Bart, embrace that fact in the sense of like, that can actually be a useful lever. Yeah. And if you cultivate that in yourself, if you, I remember when I was a kid, my mom taking me to this crusty old lady who was really sad. She was dying and we went to visit her in her apartment. She was having a hard time. And it was delightful for her to see a little kid. And she she made a big fuss and, you know, and I just ran around and was as nice to her. And my mom had sort of coached me on how to be charming to old ladies. And I tried to be as charming as I could be. In the end, I didn't know this at the time, But as we were leaving, she pulled my mom back, gave her her diamond engagement ring and said, someday Bart will get engaged to somebody. Give him this so that he can give her a nice ring. And that's the ring that Marty wears. (gasps) Yeah. That's a crazy story. Yeah. I didn't find that out until like 15 years later. But like the point is, when we walked out of the place, my mother said, did you see how happy you made her? Hmm. And I said, yeah. She said, don't you feel good about yourself? I mean, don't you feel good about what you did today? Right. Like, I'm really proud of you. You know, she was like, I'm proud of you. How do you feel? Like, and she wanted to highlight to me, do you see the connection? Yeah. Because what she was, she was trying to do is like, you want to feel good about yourself? I'm showing you the way. That's good programming. Right? She, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good, like, direct feedback, drawing the direct connection, making, highlighting the connection. And so I think that that idea of... Like on this program, one of the things I'm trying to do is trying to highlight, like, listen, if you want to be happy, attend to making other people happy. That will make you happy. Mm -hmm. Attending to your own happiness will not make you happy. And so you go, but wait, what you're telling me is to attend to other people's happiness, then I I guess secretly I am. I go, yeah, if you get your jollies making other people happy, be as selfish as you can be. Yeah. Like once you program somebody to feel good about that stuff, 
then they can be as selfish as they want. Their motives can be, you go, well, you're just, you know, I bet you that Paul Farmer guy felt great about himself, all those people that he saved from famine and, and plague. And you're like, yeah, yeah, isn't that a shame? What a jerk. And he's like, I'm so glad, you know, I'm glad somebody programmed Paul Farmer Right, right. To think that like this was the ultimate way to maximize his life. And you go like, did Paul Farmer find friendships in that realm? Yeah, probably friendships with really cool people. Yeah. Like I always say when, when people are wanting to get, like find a good, a good partner and they always go like, I don't know, the apps are not working for me. I'm like, where are you volunteering? Because if you go volunteer at Big Brother and Big Sister, you're going to be around really good, nice people. And they have sons and daughters and cousins and coworkers and friends. And so even if they're not single, they might know somebody like, you know, get yourself like, where is the stream of the kind of people that would be good to be partnered with? And the answer is they're people that get their jollies making other people happy because guess what? That's what marriage is. That's what couplehood is, is it's looking at this other person and going like, you know what? I'm really good for you. It makes me feel good to see you thrive. Whenever I see a couple where they're like, each of them is trying to figure out how they can extract the most out of the other person, I know they're doomed. But when you see people that are like, like I threw him this birthday party. Oh my gosh. I think he just loved it. And the guy's like, oh, where do you see this thing? I found this. I found this thing. I just think it's going to be really good for her. Like it's a job. I just think she will nail this thing. And you know, when I see people that, that get off on making their partner happy, that's a couple that's going to do well. Yeah. And so anyway, all of this is to sort of say like, my big critique of effective altruism is, is that I, I think it, in the short run, it makes all the sense in the world in any given dollar that you might invest. But over the long run, I think what we really want to build into people is not a cold, hard calculation of, you know, percentage-based giving, but rather the joy of having an impact a positive impact on somebody else. Because then the other thing is, old Sam FTX loser guy, mm -hmm. even if he really was motivated by making money, then he goes like, I can, if I can make more money by cutting this corner, I can make more money by doing this. And I can like, think of all the good I can do with all this money I'm making in a corrupt way. And then you know, I go like, oh, like John Rockefeller who raped the land and exploited all his workers and then created wonderful universities and, and great programs for the children of the people he impoverished. Right, right. And so I think on some level, I would rather have some of these people, instead of being effectively altruistic, I would rather have them be altruistically in business where they're running their businesses with better margins and paying their employees better. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And creating, creating more humane work environments and creating products that actually are good for the planet rather than products that will just extract a lot of money out that then they can say, and look how much I gave to UNICEF. Right. No, you're making a lot of sense. I remember reading that book by Jonathan Haidt, you know, about moral foundations and, and everything. And he's talking about- Yeah, The Righteous, the righteous mind, mind Yeah. And he's talking about how essentially one of his conclusions is we need conservatives and we need liberals. And when I'm thinking about like this question, you know, should a humanist be involved in effective altruism? I kind of wonder if it's to a certain extent, like what fits your one. Yeah. Uh, do we need both? Yeah. One pole of a really good creative tension. Yeah. 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 I, and I think that's probably. I also truth. wonder if you could look at the list of charities that effective altruists say, hey, these charities are doing, these are the, yeah, best. These are the best ones, kind of like you did back in your days working at, in nonprofits yeah. and, and go like. Now, which ones can I emotionally connect with? 
that may yeah. be kind of a, a marriage of the two, but it, it's an interesting, yeah. it's such an interesting question. And again, those guys are right because everybody can emotionally connect to the kid in the well and the kid in the well is not necessarily the best investment for everybody to make. Yeah. 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 So yeah. That, anyway, so that, good. Great question. Great question. Thanks for asking it. Whoever asked it. I loved this conversation. I thought it was like, yeah, that's a great question and a, and a great answer. Yeah, I don't know if it'll make a great podcast. Like, you know, if you're listening, if you're still listening by now, like, please send an email saying it was bearable. <laughs> I suspect so. I just go like, I'm interested, I'm interested because yeah. I, I'm always trying to figure this thing out is how do we strike the right balance here between living our lives and caring about other people? Yeah. All right, enough. We're done. Thanks, Bart. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Humanize Me. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. You could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. You could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live for you ever Cool.